You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has Micha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kowalkowski. Yitzhak, you know, after last week, I think we have to talk about old movies for a long time because that was real old. I guess some oldies, goodies, maybe forgotten. Um, n- neither of these films are going to make anyone's top 10 or films you have to see before you die. But I think um, I think each one is is probably worth a look at. Um, I haven't the one that you're going to talk about. Um, I've definitely heard about, and I've heard you talk about. But I discovered this film that I want to talk about just the the other week, um, and it's called Three on a Match, and it was a 1932 pre-code film, uh, Warner's special, uh, directed by Warner's, I guess. In, in a way, uh, you might call him a hack, but not really. He was he was like a super, cre- super inventive, creative, quick director. Some people credit him with invest- inventing the gangster genre. Mervyn Leroy, a Jewish fellow out of San Francisco, who had vivid memories in his, he writes in biographies, vivid memories of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Born, his dad was a, a one of the you know, the. Jewish merchants who came over uh, from the East Coast and tried to create some sort of uh, vibrancy of uh, Jewish life, if, if at least some sort of, uh, as we know, they were the peddlers and the store owners and the businessmen who really uh, created the bedrock of what was, would be a California's economy. Uh, that was uh, the Roy's uh, parents, Mervyn Roy's parents, I think his, his, his mom and dad separated when he was young. And he, he's, it's interesting that he lived with his, he lived uh, primarily with his dad, but he was definitely part of a hard scrabble, tough existence. Um, floating down to, to Los Angeles made sense, obviously, once movies started being made there. And he actually grew up as a kid, as a child actor, as a set designer. He did everything in terms of uh, of uh, in, in the silence, and he was really one of the pioneers of talkie films. Uh, and one of the things that he could do was get churn films out, like I said, quickly. Uh, Little Caesar was created the gangster film, of course. He and fellow his fellow Jewish actor, in the sense Edward G. Robinson, but he was also responsible for a number of of of, of, of important films in the 1930s. Uh, when I was reading up about him, I, I discovered that he and Michael Cortez, who of course was very famous as the director of Casablanca, but many, many other films, they were considered the, the ones that the studio could rely on, that Warners could rely on. They could get the movie made, bring it in under under time. And he also had a, a, a hush for discovering talent. Supposedly he discovered where the young, Lana Turner, Robert Mitchum. And uh, the actors really swore by him and said that he was a very wonderful director. He came in and helped out, you know, Victor Fleming, who was not able to finish The Wizard of Oz. Um, he actually directed and produced. He produced all of it and was able to uh, direct uh, a good part of this incredible classic. When John Ford's illness in the 50s, uh, when um, Mr. Roberts, uh, we wasn't able to complete that. Leroy came in and, and, and completed that as well. He never won an Oscar. Uh, he was nominated, uh, I believe, 
uh, for Best Director, but never won an Oscar. Uh, but I think there was about 17 Oscar performances that he was he oversaw. That's quite a that's quite incredible considering the fact that he never won any of those statues. But I want to talk about this film that he made in '32. As I said, three on a match. Uh, it has a very um, it, today we would call it perhaps a trope, but it wasn't a trope back then. The film starts out um, in and it's really it's tracing the I guess the childhood and young adulthood and maturity of three girls, three girls, women. And they're played, and it's interesting in the credits, they already show you who the actors are played as children, who they are as children and who they are as adults. The children part of the, of the, of the film is only about 10 or 11 minutes, uh, which is a good part since the film is only 62 minutes long, I think. Uh, I don't have the minutes in front of me, but it's about a, it's about a 62 minute film, maybe even less in some of the, in, in, if, if, when you're trying to find it somewhere, 62, 63 minutes. Um, and he packs in a lot in there. Now, uh, I, what I believe after seeing the film, although I didn't do much research on it, is that there was probably more scenes shot as children. And then the studio and Roy decided to just make it even quicker. Um, but basically, they have these three girls. Um, one of them, Mary, is like the is like comes from the wrong side of the tracks and a sort of a you know a trampy girl who hangs out with boys and can't do you know really doesn't care much about school at all, but she seems to have a good heart. Um, the other is a goody two shoes, the valedictorian, Ruth. And then you have the uh, the oldest, I guess the the most mature one, uh, a girl from a wealthy family. Um, she is the one who um, is basically the star of Vivian's story. Uh, and they start off, of course, as three young girls. And it's interesting in a public school in the turn of the century, and some some in nineteen oh two or something like that, or nineteen oh three. Um, and it really is a, a wonderful little uh, uh, sort of vignette about what life was like then. There was a mixture of all different types: the you know, the wealthy, the hardworking, the immigrants. And although Roy never really saw himself as much of a of a Jew, like some of the other directors, um, there is a lot of Jewish elements in that initial scene. Many people have credited Roy about showing you the underside of what was going on in the United States without being preachy. Even you know, the, many directors felt that they had responsibility to let audiences see what was going on and how hard it was, how hard people were working, especially during the Depression when these films were made, that people should know how you know, the salt of the earth people and what where they were struggling, where they came from. And you can see that in the first couple of scenes there. Uh, in this public school, and you see the effort that's put in for children uh, to meld together uh, to learn what it means to, what, to learn what good citizenry means. And it's interesting that there's a number of Jewish characters who only show up in that first couple of minutes, uh, and they're all uncredited. <laughs> they're all uncredited. Um, and, you know, there's a, you know, there's a, I guess there's a Willie Goldberg, I think is the, uh, <laughs> is the boy's name. Um, and, you know, he's, he's the boy who on the, you know, as the kids are all playing on the 
playground you know he's the one who knows what's going on he's sort of like the nosy one who knows what's happening he's not playing with the other kids but he understands what's really happening uh um you know he could tell he's the one that tells the other kids about you know when he comes to the graduation he talks to them about the suit that he's wearing and he tells the other kids about how they could also get deals on various suits and stuff um he gets a special award as uh i forgot what it was but it was sort of like the class schnook or something like that <laughs> the, the class something i again i i i, I tried listening to what it was like it was a special war for being sort of like the class kochleffel or something i don't know if they use the yiddish word or not and he cuts up there and he starts imitating you know the 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 gettysburg address his parents stand up and they cheer you know here's these these jewish immigrant kids the character the, the actor that played that and i and i recognized them right away although i you know six years later he had a major role as the jewish kid in boys town uh and of course boys town was a was already a message film about what it means to stop juvenile delinquency and things like that so i think he plays mo khan but this the character the actor is sydney miller who was a, a director and a, a musician uh, who was all, also steeped in Hollywood like Leroy his whole life, the father of Barry Miller, who uh, was in a number of films. I don't know if you've seen any of them you took, but he was in uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, he was in The Chosen. He plays Ruvain Malter, of course. Um, and I think in the one of the weirdest uh, uh, movies uh, that you've ever seen, Christine, which is about a car that somehow takes over a car, which is sort of a demonic car that takes over this Jewish, obviously Jewish looking kid and turns him into some sort of devil type of person. Um, that was all Barry Miller. I don't think he's done much. He was in fame as well, though. He also was one of the kids in fame. So his dad, Sidney, plays this boy and it, it's like I said I was watching it and I have left the fingers with them because you know here was Leroy presenting although it was a, not a major part of the film but it was clear that this is where Yidin were thriving they had become part of America they were contributing um, and they were still in all of their ethnic glory um, and it's I, it, it's like I said it's only a couple of minutes but I think it's worthwhile. There's also, at the graduation, there is a very flustered um, prof- uh, uh, teacher who serves as the band leader, Mr. Irving Finkelstein. <laughs> and you can see that he is, you know, in a very amateurish way, leading this band, but doing the best he can. Once again, another Jew who's trying to contribute to the social graces and some sort of sense of culture in what this public school was. That's all the Jewish part. So I just want to get that out of the way. And I, and, and, and the rest of the film really is really about these three girls. They grow up pretty fast, but Leroy does an excellent job of indicating their characters and how the child is the father of the man. Um, that even the, the Vivian, who seems to have everything, you know, is talking about her bloomers <laughs> or her what her what color her bloomers are, and that her bloomers are pink, you know, and that the boys are involved in that. And again, as a pre-code film, the film indicates that there was fooling around even by sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, something that would, would have been verboten in Hollywood for the, you know for the next 40 years. Um, at the, at the graduation scene, um, it's, it's indicated that Ruth, 
uh, you know, is it doesn't have the wealth to go to a, a real finishing school like Vivian. So she ends up going uh, to a sort of a, a vocational school. And of course, Mary, the bad girl, who they just let Bechesed Elia and be able to graduate when her mother speaks up for her. Uh, the, the film indicates that she's going to end up, and she does end up in a reform school, in a reformatory school. Of course, this reformatory school is not like the movies we talked about Yitzhak, a number of months ago about women in prison where, you know, this exploitation, you know, it's, it's sort of like, um, it's a tough place, but it's clearly, you know, what really wants you to think that these girls just got a bad break. They're not a bunch of evil prostitutes and who just want to take advantage of people. They're because of the 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 inequity of perhaps of the way they were raised and because of the way things were. That's why they ended up there. Vivian, however, as she gets older, um, goes to a fancy school. But what is she doing in that school? While uh, Ruth is is typing away and learning all the skills of stenography that's going to make her a woman that can join the workforce. Vivian, with all her wealth, is reading a, sea, a, a steamy romance novel, which is quite steamy, even the parts that she's reading. Um, and she's reading it to a bunch of girls who are all dressed scantily clad, which, again, is the typical angle of these pre-code films. You know, I've told you before, Yitzhak, that pre-code films were, were unfettered, but it's clear that the directors and the producers wanted to put as much get as much skin as they could get in there without it being like, you know, a, a porno type of flick. I mean, they, and again, it's not that they, you know, scenes that were totally unnecessary. Oh, they're all, you know, they're all in there. Um, these girls in their dormitory, all in, you know, various, various lingerie. And they're listening to Vivian read. Uh, Chad was the writer of the screenplay. And in the screenplay, just a great line where he says, where she says, okay, that's chapter six. And then one of the girls says, if that's chapter six, I can't believe what chapter 10 is going to be like, right? So in other words, that's steamy enough. Can you imagine what chapter 10 is? And that's such a great uh, throwaway line about, you know, about, about what it was like to, to be, uh, you know, to be a teenager. Now, the girls, now, what's also great about what Leroy does here is that he uses um, headlines and you know archival um, shots from newsreels to indicate the passage of time. Now today it's like everybody sees that. Oh, that's the way. Of course, everybody knows that's the way exposition occurs. But when Roy did in 1932, it was somewhat novel. Remember, we talked about you know, a number of weeks ago about pages of a calendar or clock changing. This right. was this was a little more inventive. Uh, and, and it also, I think, struck home to an audience. Oh, I remember that. I remember that. Whether it was Red Grange or the sinking of a certain ship or whatever, what was going on or a dirigible that, that was developed. The audiences watching this in 1932 sort of like, you know, would nod similar to the way audience did when they watched Forrest Gump, uh, Robert Zemeckis's film. Uh that was everybody loved. I think part of the reason was he, Leroy was able to massage his audience with all these events that made them believe that things things were really de- pushing through time. Again, I've sort of buried the lead over here, which is the fact that the three I mentioned Anne Dvorak, who was played Vivian, uh, but I didn't mention the other two actresses who really had very long and illustrious careers in Hollywood. 
um, I think this might have been Anne Dvorak's one of the pinnacle of, of, of her career. She really didn't make that many films uh, past the mid-30s. But the other two actresses were very active, way into their middle age and beyond. And that is Joan Blondell and Betty Davis. And it's interesting that Betty Davis, who we know four or five years later, would be the queen of Hollywood almost. Her and Miriam Davies, in term, Miriam Hopkins, I mean, in terms of like who was going to get the juiciest acting parts. Um, in 1932, in this film, Betty Davis is eye candy. She is Daryl Hannah, you know, in, you know, before she made Splash. She's, she is just, just, she's meant there just to be eye candy, which, I, again, I'm sure Betty Davis was very flattered by it because, you know, at the end of her life, she wasn't exactly, you know, you wouldn't call her from the great romantic, for the great beautiful women. But in this movie, they bleach her up very blonde, and they make sure to see her, you know, in a in a, in a bathing suit, in a very skimpy bathing suit, and also to see her also getting, you know, she's they're talking among themselves. Um, she hardly does any of the, you know, when we talk about Betty Davis, Peter, 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 you know, or or any sort of gesticulations or or line readings, she has probably one of the most bland characters she's just supposed to be a good girl and she's she, she's not even in a way the the romantic dynamism of the film at all the film is really Anne Dvorak's and Joan Blondell is, is basically you what, what, what the audience realizes when you watch the film is that she's a bad girl but she's turned her life around. She's become a singer. She's become a nightclub entertainer, but she really wants to be a good person. Okay. Well, what is the real story of the film? The real story of the film is the fact that um, Vivian uh, has, we, we realize what she's about. She's sort of like a listless, you know, type of intelligent, wealthy woman. And that she has married a man obviously her senior played by warren william who was in a, he must have been in about you know 50 60 films in the 30s usually playing a bad guy actually but in this film he's sort of he's sort of this noble suff, long-suffering tzaddik um she marries this guy uh, a, a, a super wealthy lawyer uh she has a, a child and uh, the child is played by again a child actor who who has the again it's, he does a quite a bit of um quite a bit of hamming it up the child uh and, and the child is very key to the film um he is a uh you know he's one of these little you know curly-haired moppets that's just the cutest little thing uh you could probably ever see and um his name was actually buster phelps and the kid is uncredited. It's an incredible, Yitzchuk, that these ca- actors were uncredited, even though their amount of screen time was as great as 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 Bo- Bogart is in the film. And of course, the child Buster Phelps was in this was was um, had more screen time than Bogey, but he didn't even get a credit on screen. And his purpose is to be the sweetest child in the world, uh, who loves his father and his mother, who loves him but obviously can't take care of him. Uh, because she's too interested in other things. Um, she doesn't love the man that she's married to. Um, three on the match. The reason it's called that is because a chance meeting brings these girls together again. 
um, they somehow get together. They were in the same beauty parlor, and they go out to to have a uh, uh, a bite to eat at a restaurant. Uh, and there's a, uh, as the film indicates, there's a, a legend that if three people uh, take a cigarette, light their cigarette from the same match, that one of them is going to die. Now, supposedly this was something, I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, but supposedly it was something that was pushed during World War I uh, because people were afraid that if you kept the cigarettes on, if, you, if you kept the match on too long, the enemy would see the fire and shoot towards you. So you weren't supposed to light three people from one match. That's supposedly where this the, the film sort of has in a little one of these newspaper um, articles that show up in the screen. They say this is what it was about. But it was it seems like in the 30s, enough people knew that when three people light from the same match, something bad is going to happen. So the film foreshadows the fact that something terrible is going to happen to the last person to light the match, to, to light the cigarette from the match, which was Vivian, the Andvora character. When she likes this, and then from there you see that she is in the loveless marriage, that although her, her child means a lot to her, she really is terribly bored. She wants to go away. She refuses uh, the advances of her husband, although she's dressed in a very a slinky outfit, and she just wants to go by herself somewhere uh, to go to Europe. And she takes her son with her, which is interesting, as usually she just, you know, just leave the son. But on the boat, she this played by Lyle Talbot, who had a very long career in Hollywood, um, very good looking fellow, um, sort of a real... Um, he was a lot of monster movies. Yeah, he, right. He was, right? He was, he was in a lot of films. Um, this is one of his first films. Lyle Talbot. And in this film, he, you know, he sweeps Vivian off her feet. Um, and, um, you know, he convinces her to just forget about the, forget about the cruise. They're just going to run away together and live under an assumed name. And once again, here you have Hollywood, not only, you know, once again, pre-code, you can have a woman having an extramarital affair, dumping her husband, running around, living under an assumed name. Of course, uh, her husband, uh, Mr. Kirkwood, Warren William, is looking all over for her. And um, her two friends uh, from school, they know what's going on. They know that she's living somewhere and she's taken her son with them. And what's happened is, is that um, she has squandered all the money from her family. And the film pretty clearly indicates that she's become a drug addict. She's become a drug addict, and her son, although she's not abusing her son, her son is, 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 is not obviously living in the way he should be. He's not being taken care of. He's not given healthy food to eat. And it's clear that um, Loftus, her boyfriend, is mixed up with a bunch of gangsters as well which is not going to portend well for what's happening. So here, the showgirl, who was the bad girl, decides she's going to do something. She's going to take things into her own hands and try, and she goes to uh, uh, Vivian's husband and says, I know where he is. I know where your son is. I know where your wife is. Um, 
and it's from there that the film flips the script, the, the script as it would be, and implies that now you know that she came forward. They're going to find the boy uh, Vivian and decides to marry. Um, in a scene at the beach, of course, where everybody is running around in bathing suits. <laughs> so that's where and Betty Davis in the bathing suit. And that's where he uh, decides that uh, he's going to um, marry. He wants to marry the Joan Blondell carry to marry uh, <laughs> that character. Uh, meanwhile, his, his ex-wife is devolving ever further. And um, um, although you know, the son uh, is back with the father um, and being taken care of by Betty Davis, who becomes the nanny. And, you know, there's all this this great little happy family while the ex-wife gets worse and worse. Her husband, her, her paramour, uh, hatches a plot to kidnap the boy. And by kidnapping the boy, uh, he hopes that he's going to be able to pay up his gambling debts. Uh, the, the mafiosi people who run, you know, the casino or whatever it is that he owes the money to, uh, the head fellow is Edward Arnold. Uh, and he's not in the film law, but again, Edward Arnold was a major Hollywood presence uh, in films like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, The Devil and Daniel Webster, uh, The Earl of Chicago, and other films where, you know, he was a, a major, really a major player, one of the great Hollywood second bananas, and sometimes he could carry some films even on his own, Edward Arnold. In this film, I think he's there for all of four minutes, perhaps, and a minute of it, he's actually picking hair out of his nose to, with tweezers to show what's, I guess, you know, uh, what sort of tough guy he is and how he's not going to stand uh, for anybody welching on the money that was owed him. Anyway, it turns out his his top gun is Humphrey Bogart, uh, playing a sort of a you know a, you know, a rough and tumble guy who's uh, doesn't have much of uh, many much of a uh, moral sensibility whatsoever, and they decide that they are getting in on the kidnapping, and at that point, really, the film becomes very very harrowing because it turns out that the police are looking for uh, the child, looking for her everywhere. And the the gangsters realize that they aren't going to be able to keep the kid. And they say that basically they're just going to have to escape. They're going to kill the child and escape. Um, and it's then, uh, and, through, and throughout all these scenes, you can hear and the Andvora character moaning, you know, in withdrawal because she doesn't, she can't get her drugs. Uh, because there's such a, a great dragnet around where everything is happening. Um, and in, a, in an incredible act of uh, self-sacrifice, you know, when they are, you know, Alan Jenkins is in there too, as one of the henchmen. You know, he was in many, many films playing sort of like a, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of like a comic relief fellow. Um, um, when the question was whether to go in and kill the boy and to see what's going on with her. She actually hatches a, a, pl- a plan to do something. And what she does is using lipstick, she writes, she realizes that the police are looking for her, for her child. So she, on her, on her, on her nightgown, she writes Kirkwood boy, fourth floor, 
you don't realize that because <laughs> well, what she read and then she just jumps out the window when she's discovered killing herself but making sure the police know where her son is so i sort of spoiled the movie for you right there but that scene is done so well and you're not sure what's going on you know that things are tough you know that there's a threat to the child and he is able leroy without doing much to indicate that despite the the terrible life that this woman's devolved into that she was able to summon her motherly love she was able to give and save her child um and uh, the film has this little the last 30 seconds which were tacked on i think unnecessarily where the boy is back from the kidnapping and he says mommy was still a good person or something like that and you know another guy you know um, his father is like nodding a throwaway film, Yitzhak, in some ways. But to me, he did all of this. What I just said took me about 25 minutes. He did this in an hour. I mean, can you believe this? You know, there are films, again, the, 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 the incredible, the, the inventiveness, the alacrity, the, the sense of missing the ability to cut and to, and to fade from one scene to another, to be able to pack in all this information, to have kids growing up as, as small children, to show a little bit of immigrant life, to show kids in different stages and when they were growing up, to deal with the underworld and, 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 and the ruthlessness, uh, drug addiction, um, and, you know, uh, in a sense, police procedural, all of that in 60-something minutes. It's really incredible. And I know you like films that get to the point, but you, Hollywood did not produce films like this afterwards. There was, it wasn't because, and, and, and neither did Leroy. Leroy ended up making these large, boring films. You know, uh, he, he, you know, and again, part of it was, well, you know, this is not really, this is not really art. But in some ways, these, this, what I just described to you is what became later television dramas that were you know about 48 or 50 something minutes they packed in this whole type of story um and and especially when you have can you imagine if i told you joan blundell uh betty davis and humphrey bogart and edward arnold throw in edward arnold as well that's quite a cast Right. Considering, you know, you know, like, and, it, it, and it's not like, oh, it's just a cameo. It, it really is an accomplishment. I'm not sure exactly how to classify it, but I, it, it, a 63 minute film that is able to take from the cradle to the grave and still have some sort of moral message and some humor, some drama um, and some social commentary. So. I, I am. I have to just tell you, I'm the spoil. And talking about pre-code and the and the, the effect of the, of the Hayes Code, the Hayes, you know the Hayes Office and everything is uh, a very big big impact on on film in general. I was and it, it reminded me of, of one of the early '40s uh, war, wartime, one of the first in color uh, Looney Tunes cartoons was, I believe, the first. Tweety Bird cartoon. I don't know if she was called Tweety Bird yet, but they were. She was being pursued by these two cats who were pastiche of Abbott and Costello. I think they were Babbitt and Catstello. And uh, at one point, 
the the Bud Abbott cat is telling Lou Costello cat, give me the bird, and then and then the Costello cat said, if it wasn't for the Hayes office, I'd give him the bird, all right. You know, look the the Warner Brothers cartoons. We could do a whole show on Warner's and what Warner's was trying to do. Um, you know, the critique of Disney. You know, and and I agree with you. You know, the unfortunately, like we talked with Tom last week, I think a lot of those great cartoons are going to be lost. But yeah, so what 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 what's your pick for this week? So I'm picking this movie because uh, this weekend coming up in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, is Blobfest, which I think we've mentioned before. So we're kind of right off the heels of Monster Bash and the next uh, major monster gathering, uh, really a a sort of a pilgrimage is Blobfest, which is, if anyone is familiar with the movie The Blob, uh, it one of the most iconic scenes in the, the whole movie was made in, in Pennsylvania, not too far from Philadelphia, kind of maybe an hour north of Philadelphia. And the uh, one of the most famous scenes, it was made in a few different towns around, around the area. And one of the most famous scenes, which I remember even being shown in Muppet Babies, was that the blob attacks a movie theater Steve McQueen and his friends are sitting up in the balcony of the movie theater and the blob attacks the theater and then the people come running out of the theater. And that theater, uh, they used an actual movie theater and the theater really looks pretty much the same as it did, you know, the film was released in in 1958, but as my friend uh, Chris Yeworth, whose father directed the film, uh, as he often points out the film was actually made in 57. And so every year in July at that theater, which is an active movie theater to this day, and they do all kinds of interesting shows there in Phoenixville. uh, They show the blob and then they show a few other movies and they have the street fair. Which is really about the whole genre and bringing in various small and big stars this is a this is a, a a weekend dedicated to the blob. Well, it's dedicated to the blob, but like Monster Bash, they like to bring in when they can different uh, you know actors and 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 you know horror hosts. You know, Mr. Lobo hosted for a few years. Uh, I remember last time we were there in person, Rico Browning was there who played the creature from the Black Lagoon. They've had Godzilla themes. I see. So. It's 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 a, it's kind of monster bash light, and it's not in a in a hotel. Uh, it's you know it's it mixes between being in the movie theater on the street. Again, I've I was never there for the Shabbos programs, but they have all kinds of. They have a little film festival where people show their own uh, short films. They have contests, streaming contests. They have a dance, all kinds of things going on. But again, we've only ever been there Sunday, and generally Sunday after they show the blob, which is, you know, they show that every year, they'll usually show, generally, the years I've been there was always a a modern film that was made in the style of these 50s films, something like the, the Lost Skeleton of Cadaver, those type of movies. And instead, this year, as the second feature, is a movie that predates the blob. The blob, like, again, we said was released in 58, in color, with Steve McQueen, uh, this was the one that they're going to show. And actually, they're going to show 
later this month at the Mahoning Theater as well. They're showing a, a whole, a, which is a drive-in theater in Pennsylvania that has a certain cult status as well. Uh, but the second film they're showing is one that we've mentioned briefly uh, when we were talking about uh, Harold Gould. I believe it's his first screen appearance, although he's uncredited. Uh, and it's a, a, a strange little movie, but I think it's the first uh, Alien Invader movie uh, to be released, as far as I know. I think it predates The Thing. It predates the, uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still. It's not as prestigious as either of those films. It's a very low-budget movie. Uh, it's called The Man from Planet X, and it's directed by a director that we've mentioned before as well, who's able to take a low budget and make something really good out of it. Uh, the one movie we spoke about, I think one of the first movies we spoke about, was 1945 Detour, uh, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. Ulmer also directed some Yiddish language films. He was, he was born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, and he was Jewish himself, and he, he made at least three or four Yiddish movies. He made some Ukrainian language movies, all of them he made in the United States for an ethnic audience. And then he would make these other films. He made several monster movies, science fiction movies. And this one is, it's interesting. It has William Shallert uh, sporting a goatee and a, and a mustache. So he looks very different than he did in, in Patty Duke. I think then than actual films right that he was on television yeah. he, he was constantly he was constantly on television yeah he was he was in everything he was in everything and actually mentioning harold gould i discovered i just saw this now and it's it's on uh it's on youtube 1994 they made an after school special called the writing on the wall where william shallard plays a, a, a bishop and uh harold, harold gould is the rabbi <laughs> harold gould here harold gould is mr goldenberg and Hal Linden is Rabbi Markowitz. <laughs> I see. Hal Linden from Barney Miller. Um, yeah, it's the, the writing on the wall is about uh, three teenagers who put some graffiti on a, on, a, on a shul. And then instead of calling the police, the rabbi has them go through 25 hours of Holocaust education. I haven't seen it, but I, interesting that the two of them uh, sure. are in the same production, you know, some 40 three years apart. So what's, what, what's the, I spent about 25 minutes telling you every single detail about three yeah. on a match. What's the plot of the man from planet X? So one thing is that the alien is not really, uh, which is similar to ET and many other movies that came later. It has, it, it brings, you know, the, all the tropes that it brings out. This was probably the first time that these things were done. You know, the alien doesn't talk only makes musical notes type kind of similar to close, close encounters hmm. all these things you know they and he's not a malignant a malign malignant character he's just kind of stuck lost and trying to get get back home like he, he doesn't befriend a child in this one but uh, he lands somewhere in the in the moors of scotland and it's very foggy all throughout the movie when what, what i found fascinating is this movie also I mean, usually my movies are shorter. You you beat me out here. This one's about 70 minutes long. And the budget for the movie was about $50,000. And it was extremely successful considering how it, uh, it, it, it made well over a million dollars. So they, they, that's, that's not, 
that's not good business in the movie business. They they usually want you to lose money uh, so you can have a tax you write off. You, you know, it's, I'm looking at the um, you know at the cast. Was there a car- Was there an actor who played the uh, the alien? No, as the man from Planet X, Pat Golden. So I, I don't know. I don't know if he was in anything else. Um, I mean, it's, it, the, the, the alien looks kind of strange looking. He almost looks like he's uh, styrofoam or paper day or something underneath a, a, a space helmet, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a, a different type of thing. And he just, he just is stuck and wants to go home and can't communicate. And William Shaller kind of takes advantage of him. Uh, you know, take William Shower, you know, as much as he seems to radiate a sense of, you know, safety as a, uh, um, you know, a, as father, a, a fatherly figure. figure, there's always a sense of you never know. There's something, something wrong with this guy. There's something a little bit off, right? So he, he could easily play a villain, and he did play villains, right, uh, frequently on television. And 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 part of what he disarms you. Shower it with his, you know, his avuncular nature, so to speak, and then, you know, you, you right, and I think in this film too, in this film, he's definitely the bad guy. Yeah, but he doesn't. He presents himself as a benevolent, as a scientist, as a, you know, but he he keeps doing these things that kind of go against the character that he's presenting himself. So it's really, uh, you know, he it, it, he's a complex character, and and this very you know odd little movie. It's it's available on Tubi. Uh, it's you know very atmospheric, like was you know anything taking place on the moors with the with with all the fog all over. You know, it's it's kind of an interesting place. Does, 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 I, does anybody uh, do they keep, do they keep their accents at all? Because it's an American cast primarily, right? Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's it, it, you you really don't you don't have like a Scottish accent. You have mm-hmm. this is pretty much all. Everyone's just still using their regular. American well, I, I, I love the. Um... The theater card, you know, the uh, for the film, uh, <laughs> the deadliest enemy the world has ever known. <laughs> and of course, you know, here, you know, you have the monster coming, you know, the the spaceman coming out of the spaceship, and um, a very, you know, <laughs> I don't know who the girl is, Margaret Field, I guess, uh, supposed to be her, you know, in a, you know, in her pointy green sweater there. <laughs> He's, you know, he doesn't seem but like he. It, yeah, it's not. It's not really like that in the movie. It's <laughs> right. Doesn't seem like he has a clue of what's going on. Um, I'm reading you some of what I have here from the uh, from the posters. The weirdest creature human eyes have ever seen. The weirdest visitor the earth has ever seen. <laughs> yeah, the deadliest enemy the world has ever known. I mean that that part certainly exaggerated because the, the he's really not deadly or scary. It just just kind of weird looking, and that's right. all. A, a face to haunt the earth forever. <laughs> oh, yes, actually, William Shower is pretty handsome. Actually, in the in the in the, in the photos here, he's got a nice he has a nice beard. And Elliot, and of course, Elliot is is what Spielberg called the boy in ET. Right. Sounds like it's sounds like it's a homage. Sounds like it's definitely a throwback to that. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly meaning meaning ET was was uh, making reference. That could be. I'm saying Elliot. The idea is because right. the Margaret Field character is the char- is the one who befriends him, right? The one who realizes that he's benevolent, right? And and her name is Enid Elliot, 
right? Yeah. And her, her, is it her dad? Yeah. I mean, Almer was, was a, a master at taking very little and doing a lot with it. I mean, what he did with, with Detour was, was absolutely incredible. And I right. think well, that's, that's one of the greatest film noirs of all time. Yeah. You know, that's, and, he, and this is like a kind of a, you know, being set in, in the moors like this, it, it has kind of noir type of element in a science fiction film. It's not, I know, it's, it's it's not the day there stood still it's, it's it's it has some of the has some of the claustrophobia though uh it's not as claustrophobic as the thing you know being stranded in in the arctic but it is in a remote area and and it always directors that seemingly um you know could operate in in a multiple multiple genres um although omer was you know um I guess mostly, uh, you know, again, he, you know, whatever Hollywood wanted, he'll make it, right? I mean, I mean, that was yeah, what he was he, about. He, I mean, he had, you know, he did, you know, he did westerns, he did the uh, sword and, you know, sandals, science fiction. Um, you know, he, he has a weird. He, he, he is so young, so bad, which was about girls of form school. And the same thing is very true about Mervyn Leroy. Uh, you know, he made musicals. He did Gypsy, of course. Um, you know, weepies, melodramas, gangster films. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is, you know, again, Spielberg, I think, has shown the fact, you know, it was West Side Story, but it took him to his 70s to make a musical. You know, you know what I'm saying? Um, I, I think, you know, these the, the auteurs that we have, even Hitch, you know, was somewhat, you know, he made one comedy. Most of his films, you know, are suspense. Um, the idea that you know these guys, and you know, we can throw Michael Cortez in there as well. Um, you know, made Yankee Doodle Dandy, of course, which many people probably watched over this last weekend. But you know, I, I think there's something to these, to the quality of these directors. Make you know, making a, a lot out of a little, uh, being able to uh, produce things in a way where you know it's not like Michael Cimino, who did Heaven's Gate. You know, uh, you know, turned into this you know four or five hour extravaganza. Um, and you know, I, I think there's something when we extol these films to also extol, I think, it's called the the work ethic of these directors, and and also I think to understand what you know television, how television altered things. In the 1930s, there was no television, and people who didn't want to go sit for two hours wanted to have some you know b- film a b film perhaps a film that they would watch first that would give them a complete story in 60 minutes well here was mervyn Leroy presenting oh, they, that they would, they would be sitting for a few hours because you, you'd have right, i know i understand what i'm saying it's, it's, one, that's right. right they would they would see it was a double feature so they would see one film oh, yeah that was a pretty good yeah that was a pretty good movie yeah then they would break and perhaps they go to the bathroom see a cartoon come back in into the theater and catch the second New feature yeah, right? and, and 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 that was again but we don't we don't compre- we 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 fail to comprehend these things we talked about shorts before and serials but you know this was you know a full feature um and of course we talked about you know Chaplin did similar things in silent film but I think Leroy you know deserves credit it's interesting that you know once he went to MGM and he was making these big musicals and these other you know large dramas that were you know he sort of you know he felt that he had sacrificed himself for in the past and, and I think there's there's something to rediscover I think Prestige TV Yitzhak has brought back the idea of being able to create you know a full drama 
you know, within 48, 55 minutes and, and for people to be hooked and be connected to it. Now, again, you know, Elmer, of course, you know, you mentioned his more prestigious other films, but it sounds like this film as well, you know, it's a little, I guess it does drag a little bit. You probably could have shaved for you a couple of 10 minutes from it. But, you know, what is it that 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 film is supposed to do? What is escapist fare? Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily tell the glorious story of of the fall of mankind or, you know, an important morality message. Um, and I think both of these films know what they are. The throwaway lines and to be on a match. Here we have one throwaway line was just, just that the spaceship that it, it landed, they said, you know, it looks like a diving bell. And the scientists, well, said, you know, the difference between space and going into our atmosphere and, and going to our atmosphere and into the water it's just a, a difference in the density of the, uh, of you know the gas versus liquid, and it's it's kind of bringing out that same message of how you know, we're not all that different. We're not you know we we shouldn't be afraid of things that we think are are uh, are alien. I know I I, I listen to, sometimes. I haven't listened for a while to Dr. Stephen Greer, who he he's uh, very pushing much the uh, disclosure movement and he really hates the word alien because he says you know we're all created by one god and and we all are connected with you know the that we're kind of he's kind of saying we're all with Selim Lokim even if we're from another planet yeah again if you look if, if you look in the Rambam the Ram, if you look in the Rambam or in Avuchim, it's pretty open where he says we are so centered on this planet we don't know what's out there and he says right. it's, it's he says it's a, it's a human pride to believe that in all the vastness of creation that we're the only ones that mean something and of course this goes against the kabbalistic perspective of bishvil yisrael shenikoreshus and the whole bria and all universe and all the lomos is all for the achas of, of of us he talks about also in in, in the yisrael Torah about the chokhmah of the different that's uh, right that the planets have planets. intelligence but 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 marnavukham he actually mentions the fact that it's 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 a gaiva a haughtiness that that we appropriate ourselves to think that there can't be other other aspects of life. So, I mean, even from the Kabbalistic perspective, though, I, 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 I listen a lot to Rabbi Bart Sadok, and he's very <laughs> involved in these types of things. And he says that essentially, again, kind of that similar thing. These are, when you say Bishvil Yisrael, you know, we know the Zayar Kaddish talks about Shaden Yehudoyen, that, you know, the, that, that there are Jewish demons, and, and he says we can assume that there are therefore Christian demons and Muslim demons and Buddhist demons. And similarly, along those lines, uh, that, you know, these beings on the different levels they are, some above us and below us, uh, they're all related to us. They're all, you know, we're, we're they, they also, the, the, the concept of Nishmas Yisrael, it's a supernal concept, so it's not really. Yeah, yes, it was, it was, yeah, I, I know the safer abris is probably what you're referring to from the Talmudic Grah that you know basically says that if there is life on other planets, it doesn't have bechira chavshis because only only the mina has bechira chavshis. But it's 
not all the mekubalim. Look, look, look I, I don't want to, you know, uh, put a kibosh on on this sort of speculative philosophical discussion. But I think part of what the science fiction uh, genre was about, it wasn't about, you know, again, there might have been some really thought that we would encounter extraterrestrial life soon. That might have been an excited idea people had, but I think most of them, especially the day the world stood still and other films, I think really, and I, I haven't seen this one, I think most of them are really about understanding the people around us, understanding oh. other human beings, um, having a greater sense of tolerance. I mean, remember, this was on the heels of World War II uh, when you had you know, a genocidal regime that wanted to destroy us. Uh, so a, a film that sort of you know, begs for understanding of the other, um, I think is important. But I think it's really belied. Again, you know, we talk about the posters, you know, obviously the people who are selling the film wanted it to be about, they wanted people to be scared. They wanted people to sort of, you know, sort of think there was some kinky thing going on between, you know, the alien, you know, and the brunette. Um, and and I think that's really, you know, again, I go back to the idea of, you know, there's, there's always these, these multiplicity of intentions happening. Um, you know, you, you want to make money for the studio. You want to do it cheap. You want to get people in, in 1951 away from their television sets and to see something that was different. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, people were depressed and in their houses and 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 and. and you know, going on Skid Row or wherever it was, they wanted to, you know, get in their seats and 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 just perhaps see uh, a reflection of the life that they had, and to sort of see how a good, you know, the the girl on the bad side of the tracks could actually end up changing her life. But it was really all about providing all that in an entertaining package. So I think you know when we talk, it's going to again. I, I don't mean uh, yeah, to... obviously, yeah. It's, it, this is this isn't any great prestige film. This isn't the day the Earth stood, and even the day the Earth stood still, which was a prestige film, wasn't wasn't sold as it. It was sold the same way that this movie was sold. <laughs> That's right. Interested. That's right. Jennifer was it. Um, it was um, Patricia Neal. Patricia Neal, right? So you know, it was about Patricia Neal. You know, somehow being threatened by the monster, and who knows what the monster. Yeah, yeah, again, it was again it, it, it all the the lurid. Um, uh, you know, suggestion that somehow the monster would ever weigh, you know, this metal, you know, whatever it was made out of. So again, because and, and that's why I, I guess it's so fascinating for us to look at it. I mean, we we try to extract meaning. We have to realize that that none of this could happen unless, you know, you had the chewing gum, unless well, you had the you sugar know, rush. Going it, back to, to the blob, what, you know, when, when, uh, when, uh, when or, uh, Yeworth directed the Blob. He wanted to make money so he could make Christian movies, and that was really you know. So he understood if he makes a few science fiction movies that are that are successful, he can do what he really wants is make religious movies, and that's what he wound up doing with the money that he made off of off of the Blob and the 4D Man and the Dinosaurus and all the other the more popular movies he made was was to get his message out. So. And I didn't see, I, I don't see any message in the, blo- in the blob the way this movie seems to be, you know, Ulmer, you know, being from, not, you know, he, he escaped before the war, but recognizing he's a particular share of Plata that he, you know, this he had, as, as cheap as it was, 
it wasn't robot monster. It wasn't Plan Nine from Outer Space. It, it had a lot more going. Cause Plan Nine from Outer Space, another example of a movie that was had a religious message because uh, that was the opposite of of the the Blob. They there there was no obvious religious message, but the point was to make money to to finance religious religious messages. Uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space. The, the story goes the the backers of the movie. Uh, were, were from the Baptist Church, and there was, you know, kind of put into the movie, you know, a mention of of you know God wouldn't let this happen, and the you know the the army man is like, what you're talking about God, and he's like, and like the alien is like, it's kind of the most profound part of the movie actually, and the alien, he's like, are you so arrogant to think that we too don't don't have a concept of of God that we don't think of God like what what you know if if you believe God is real and the ultimate reality. Why wouldn't you think that we people from other planets would have that same recognition and and you know be be worthy to the same Hisgalas whatever that we have you know that uh... yeah look I think that the um, like we say it's look it's 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 uh, all films like the ones that we've talked about represent a little bit of a strapping ourselves in. And going back in time and seeing. So, so, so if, if if you're not going to the monster to Blobfest this weekend or to uh, the Mahoning Theater drive in a couple of weeks, it is uh, streaming on. We hope you enjoy both of these, and let us know what you think. You know, we we definitely want to get your your feedback. I think is is crucial. Okay, take care, my friends. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.